listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Let me read our scripture this morning, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12, and then also 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 19 to 26. So Luke 24, 1 to 12 says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed at this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened." 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 to 26 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people, we, we, are all, we are of all people must to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy shall be destroyed is death. You know, my wife and I have been married 15 years this coming summer, and in that time, we've now remodeled three houses. I'm hoping that's the last one. But in the midst of those three remodels, two of them were pretty significant in that we wanted to create more of an open floor plan. We wanted to to take out a couple of walls, and neither of us have much of a construction background, so we started talking to professionals. And one of the most important questions that comes up when you start looking at these kinds of things is, is this wall load-bearing? You know, that's the biggest question you have to ask when you're considering taking out a wall. Will, will this wall uh, create a structural problem for the house if we take it out? Because there are two kinds of walls, really. There are walls that are just used to partition off the house. They're really kind of fake walls, almost. And then there are walls that are load-bearing, walls that actually support the weight of the house. And if you take those walls out, guess what? The load comes crashing down. So you don't want to take those out, and you want to make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, For those of you who are not construction people, it's kind of like a game of Jenga. You know, uh, you know from playing Jenga that there are certain bricks that can come out of the house. Watch this, I'm going to collapse the whole thing on this. You know, if you carefully remove certain bricks, they can come out, they're not load-bearing, the structure still stays standing. But what would happen if I took out this one right here at the bottom? See if I can do it really quickly. Nope. 
You're right, that one was load-bearing. So you don't want to be wrong about that. And Christianity is a lot like that. There are things in the, in the Christian faith that we can and have disagreed upon for centuries. You know, Christians still debate about, um, should we baptize infants or adults? Uh, what's really going on when we receive communion? What, what should be the, the different ways that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are practiced in the church? All of these things are things that Christians have disagreed on for centuries. They're things that are still debated. All of them are still really important. None of them are load-bearing. In other words, no matter which way you go on that issue, the house of your Christianity isn't going to collapse. Today, on the other hand, we come to the epicenter of Christianity, the ultimate load-bearing issue of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the issue that is the support beam for everything else in our faith. Now, you might have noticed this. I've certainly taken notice of, of this recently. That more and more people, um, even people claiming to be Christians, are saying things like, well, the resurrection isn't that important. You know, is it um, that Jesus actually bodily rose again from the dead? Maybe he spiritually rose again from the dead. Or maybe it was sort of a metaphor or a lesson for the rest of our lives. You, you hear these kinds of things being said. Um, one author I read this past week, uh, a pastor, a children's pastor actually, teaching uh, parents how to address Easter with their kids, said this. One thing to bear in mind is this. The point of the Easter story isn't whether or not Jesus literally rose from the dead. We're missing the point if we're fighting over the historical accuracy of a bodily resurrection. On our text from 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, um, yeah, that is the point. That's exactly the point. Like, if Christ is not raised, we above all people are most to be pitied. We're a bunch of sorry suckers, Right? If Christ isn't raised from the dead, you have no hope. The resurrection is that load-bearing wall. It's in all the major creeds. The resurrection is at the heart of the proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. Everything hinges on this one historical event being true. And I want you to notice that your life hinges on it being true or not as well. Even if you're not a Christian in here today, by the way, welcome. We're so glad you're here. This event really matters for your life, no matter which way you go. Even our dating system revolves around this monster event 2,000 years ago. And so I like the way that Elisa Childers puts it. She says, the truth of Christianity stands or falls based on the resurrection of Jesus being an actual historical event. Scripture tells us that if it didn't happen, then we have no hope for salvation. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians. And Paul gives lots of reasons for this in 1 Corinthians 15, but I think he would sum it up like this. And we kind of sang about this. A dead savior is no savior at all, right? If our enemies are Satan, sin, and death, then to have someone come along and say, hey, I'll die for you, but they stay dead, it's a nice gesture for sure, but it's of absolutely no help to us in our situation. We need somebody who can conquer our enemies. We need somebody who can conquer death itself. So if the resurrection of Jesus is this load-bearing wall of Christianity, if it is this most important issue that everything else hinges on, it brings us to one question that we need to wrestle with today, and that is, how do we know it's true? How do we know it happened? There's so much riding on it, and that's what I would like to think about and look at with you for a few moments today. And I spent a lot of time, you know, thinking and praying, especially for those of you here who are not Christians. You know, maybe you're seeking, 
Maybe you're thinking, maybe one of your friends has introduced you to Christianity. Um, maybe uh, you, you know, your friend said, hey, do you want to go to brunch tomorrow? I'm buying. And they brought you here. And I'm sorry, they shouldn't have done that. You will get a brunch, but that was a trick, and they shouldn't have done that. But you're here, so you might as well make the best of it. All right? So, so we're going to look at this today. How do you know the resurrection is true? And even asking that question, how do you know that a, a, a historical event is true, is really difficult because obviously the resurrection of Jesus is this historical event that we say took place 2,000 years ago. And it's very, very difficult. It's actually impossible to prove that any historical event is true that any historical event happened. That's just not the way that history works, right? I could no more prove the resurrection of Jesus to you than I could prove that George Washington existed. They're just, we don't have, you know, footage or camera footage from back then. We can't, we can't prove those things. So science and history are different disciplines. Science studies that which is provable or that which is testable or that which is repeatable, while history records that which is not repeatable, that which is an outlier. All right? And so it's important for us to realize that while we're talking about, you know, giving reason for something, it has to be done in the right discipline. And so I can't provide you a video surveillance of Jesus coming out of the tomb, but I think Luke's gospel gives us a really good start to a rational belief that this actually happened. I mean, it's stunning, right, that a man came back from the dead. That's what we believe in. That's what we hinge all of our lives on. But I think he gives us good reason to believe that. And so we're going to look at that together. But you need to know also as we kind of begin that rational belief um, is part of Christianity. Christianity is not, um, that's not all that Christianity is. It's not just what you can reason with your mind. So it's, it's a lot more than just rational belief, but it's not less than that either. So the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's a, it's a well-thought-out faith. It's a faith with backbone to it. But you're not going to have proof. And so as we're going through these things, we're going to look at how the truth can bear scrutiny. The, cr the truth can be questioned. And that the Gospels actually do intend to provide us evidence. Lots of people are questioning in these Gospels. Lots of them are thinking. They're doubting. And so the Gospels encourage us to come to them and do the same thing. Question, poke, prod, ask the difficult things because the truth can bear all scrutiny. So let's look at this. There's four things in our text today, and there are many, many more that we could talk about when it comes to evidence for the resurrection, but four real important things that I want to bring out of our text today. And the first is the detail that we see, not only in Luke's gospel, but in the other gospels as well. There's just so much detail that's not necessary to move the story forward. Have you ever noticed this? That in the gospels, it'll say things like, at the ninth hour, or during this time of the year, or at this lake, or in John's gospel, I love how John records, uh, when Jesus gave the great catch of fish, there were 153 fish. Not 154, not 152. It's of absolutely no importance to the story. Other than that, it was being reported, right? There's lots and lots of detail there. And here, we see the good Dr. Luke carefully recording what's happened. And he says it was the first day of the week, and it was at dawn. And the only reason for all these sorts of details to be in the story is that it actually happened. Because fiction was not written this way, you understand. You know, some people will say that the Gospels are legends or myths. They're, they're like ancient Greek mythology, right? Um, the only problem with that is, ancient, if you ever read ancient legends or myths, they don't read like the Gospels at all. And C.S. Lewis helps us to see this. He points this out. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like, 
I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. Right, so Lewis is saying like, look, this, is, this never happened. This is a modern technique of having lots of detail in fiction. And so if it's true that this is fiction, then somebody came up with it back then and it ended. It didn't go on for 2,000 years. And then somebody started doing it again. But like, this is not the way legends and myths read. So the detail in the Gospels is very interesting. It doesn't read like ancient myth or legend at all. That's the first piece of evidence. The second, and I find this to be the most prominent one, that I always come back to, and that's the women. We saw it in the kids' production up here. The women, all four Gospels record, the very first witnesses to the resurrection are all women. Not a man there at the tomb. Not initially. All of them are women, and there is no plausible explanation for this other than that it actually happened that it was actually being reported by the authors of the Gospels. This would have been, if you were trying to make up a story in the first century that you wanted people to get on board with, there is no way you would have had all the first witnesses to the resurrection to be women. Just listen to what the historian Josephus says about women's testimony in court in the first century. He says, but let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at least, and those, with such, and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak the truth. So I know that's super offensive, right? Because obviously this is, this is a misogynistic time. This is a, a patriarchal culture where women had a very low place in society. Their, their testimony couldn't even be admitted in court. So why on earth would you make all the first witnesses to the massive event of your faith, the, the load-bearing event of your faith, why would you make it women? You're just asking for trouble, right? And you have, to, you have to think that all of the gospel writers, they knew this and they were thinking about this as they were writing it. It was like, this is going to look bad, right? Just thinking through, like, we're going to have problems with this, you guys. We're all writing it down, but this is going to create a problem down the road here. They knew Christianity was going to take heat for it. Now, what's even more interesting is if you compare all four Gospels, the names of the women are slightly different, but the one woman's name who appears in each of the four Gospels is who? Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary was not just a woman... But it tells us in Luke chapter 8 that she, was, she had seven demons cast out of her. She's a reformed mental patient. So now you don't just have a woman whose testimony wasn't admissible in court, but you have a reformed mental, mental patient. We know from the, the gospel accounts that demoniacs were people that would often walk around half naked. They were incredibly off-putting. Nobody wanted to be around them. They'd be talking to themselves, hearing voices, sometimes convulsing. Mary was no pillar of society. Like, Mary was not someone who you'd say, that's the person I want to be the, 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 I want to have her testimony be the foundation of our faith. You choose somebody who's high in society, somebody who's respected, somebody who's a pillar of the community. Like, yes, we can trust that person. Not crazy Mary. Don't choose her. And yet, Jesus loved Mary. 
Mary had seven demons cast out of her. She was set free by Jesus, and she adored Jesus. She wept at the tomb, and Jesus says, she's going to be the first witness to my resurrection. Of course, think about the blowback. This happened because Mary was noted as the first witness to the resurrection. Celsus in the second century, a huge opponent of Christianity. This is over about 150 years after Jesus rose from the dead. He comes back and he says about Mary, he says, look, who saw this resurrection? A hysterical female? As you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery, who either dreamt in a certain state of mind and through wishful thinking had a hallucination due to some mistaken notion, or, which is more likely, wanted to impress the others by telling this fantastic tale. And so by this cock and bull story to provide a chance for other beggars. See, friends, the gospel writers would have never chosen Mary as their first witness. They knew they were going to take heat for it, and sure enough, they did. But that's actually part of the evidence for it being true. Because they would never, ever make this up. When thinking about the historical reliability of the Gospels, the women being the first witnesses to the resurrection is a huge deal. And of course, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, the women were not the only witnesses. They were not the only ones to see the risen Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to many others, 500 at one time. I don't know that much about hallucinations, but I know that huge masses of people don't have them all at one time. 500 people at one time. And best yet, Paul says, most of them are still alive. You can go ask them. If you're making up a story, you don't say those kinds of things. You don't say, go ask these people. They saw it. Matter of fact, you don't make up a lie about someone until hundreds of years after everybody's dead that could totally controvert your story. All the Gospels are written within... 50, 60, 70 years of Jesus' resurrection. It's recent. So the women, huge piece of evidence to Jesus' resurrection. They would have never written that down if it didn't actually happen. Thirdly, the material is way too honest and counterproductive. Have you ever noticed that when you read the Gospels? Just horribly counterproductive. Like, you would never write this unless this is actually the way it happened. I mean, look at what happens when the women tell the disciples. They don't believe it. No way. This is a tale. Those crazy women again, you know. I don't know what they thought actually happened, but they don't believe it. They just come straight out and they're like, nope, we don't believe you. You know, if you were making up a story about the the founders of the faith, those, those men who would go to their deaths dying for Christianity, why would you have them initially not believing? Don't you think that gets it off on the wrong foot? See, I think it can be easy to look down on people from antiquity and say, well, they had lots of gods and they just swallowed everything uncritically. They just believed anything they ever heard. They weren't clear thinking, you know, rational people like us. Oh, they were highly rational. Look, it seemed to them like a tall tale. It was impossible. They figured this must be a mistake. It couldn't be. You know, they were thinking the same thing that you and I would be thinking if we had just seen a, a person executed and, then so, and watched them be buried. And then someone comes to us and says, hey, I saw this person the other day. I saw this person alive. We'd say, no, you didn't. That had to be a doppelganger. There's some, there's some mistake there. I saw them. They're dead. They're in the tomb. Thinking exactly the same things that we are. So this tells us that the disciples were normal people like us. They were skeptics. But it also tells us once again, there's no plausible explanation for this being in the gospel accounts unless it in fact happened. The material is just too counterproductive. 
I mean, you think if they were making up a story about themselves, they wouldn't make themselves look so foolish. And this isn't just here at the resurrection text. This is throughout the Gospels. So often throughout the Gospels, the disciples are seen as weak, dense, unbelieving, you know, prideful, foolish. Why would you write a story like that about yourself if it was false? There's no reason for this to be there unless it actually happened. The text is just saying to us openly and honestly, this is going to be hard to believe. Even the disciples didn't believe at first, so don't be surprised if you don't at first. They needed time to think. They needed time to examine the, te- to examine the evidence for themselves. So Luke is saying here, go ahead, poke, prod, examine the evidence, look at it for yourself. It can bear the scrutiny. And you understand, only the truest sorts of things do that, right? Invite the questioning. Only the truest sorts of people say, hey, question me. I'm innocent, right? On the other hand, if you've got a person who's guilty and they get up on the stand, the last thing they want is a million questions from the prosecution. Because lying is hard work. It's very hard work, isn't it? You know, for being a kid, okay, I've got to keep track of all these lies. You know, and you're going back in your mind, and you're thinking, because if you tell a lie, you have to remember it, because the next lie you tell might paint you into a corner, might get you stuck, you might contradict yourself. Whereas telling the truth is simple. You just have one story to remember. Even if it's hard to believe, you just tell it. And that's the feel that all four gospel counts have. That nobody would tell this story if they were making up a lie. They're just telling the truth. That's the third piece of evidence. And then finally, we come to the fourth piece of evidence, which we only see a glimmer of here in the text. And that's the change in the disciples. I think this is a big one for me, too. You know, we don't get to see it here because Luke writes his gospel, and then Luke goes on to write the sequel to his gospel, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And one of the most notable things between Luke, Luke 24 here, and the Acts of the Apostles is the stunning change in the apostles. They go from being this group of doubters, skeptics, unbelievers, to people boldly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, even dying brutal deaths for their faith. And so as we see that stunning transformation, we have to say, what happened? What happened in between this passage here and Acts? What would be the reason for that kind of change? What would would change these guys from doubters and skeptics to bold proclaimers of the risen Lord, willing to give their lives for it? Now, we know that people will give their lives for something that is a lie. You can see this with cults, right? Think of David Koresh or uh, that crazy Marshall Applewhite guy from Heaven's Gate cult a long time ago. You know, lots of people committed suicide. But here's the kicker. They thought it was true. Right? Nobody that I know of says, I'm going to give my life for something I know is a lie. I don't know anybody like that. I've never heard of a group of people like that saying, yeah, we know this is a lie, it's not true, but we're going to kill ourselves for it or we're going to give our lives for it anyway. Clearly, something happened to take these disciples from skeptics to where they believed this was the truth and they would give their lives for it. Otherwise, there's, never, there's no way they would do that. There's no way they would be tortured and killed for this risen Lord. What was it that happened? I believe it was Jesus came out of that tomb. They witnessed him and they saw him. They encountered him. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
There's lots of evidence for the resurrection. We could go on and on today. There's more to talk about, but I wanted to give you just enough to get you thinking, just to get you considering this morning. Like I said, I don't have proof. That's impossible to give you about any historical event. The Christian faith will always take faith. But I just want you to know it's a well-thought-out faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's a faith that doesn't say, just check your brain at the door. It's not blind or naive. There's good reason to believe the resurrection of Jesus. There's good reason to, bu- to build your house on this load-bearing wall of the resurrection. I love the way Sheldon Van Aken puts it. He was a student of C.S. Lewis's and uh, an atheist turned skeptic turned Christian. And this is how he explains it. Uh, it he has this whole little um, essay called The Encounter with Light. It's very, very interesting. But he says this towards the end at his conversion. He says, I saw a gap between me and Christ. How was I to cross that gap? If I was going to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. But I got nothing. But then one day I realized, my God, there was not only a gap before me, there was a gap behind me as well. There would have to be a faith step either way. I suddenly realized I couldn't prove that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty he wasn't. I now realized I couldn't reject Jesus without faith. There was only one thing to do once I saw that gap behind me and before me. I flung myself over the gap toward Jesus. Of course, Vinokin wrestled with this. There's no proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Not in the scientific sense. There's evidence, but no proof. No absolute certainty. That's the gap that faith has to cross. But will you reckon with what he's saying here? There's a gap no, no matter where you look. If you think that we're all just here by accident, that we're just a collocation of molecules, that we're, we're nothing but a bunch of neurons firing randomly, well, that takes a huge faith leap to believe that and to rest your life on it. Don't you understand? Every single one of us is building our lives on some faith premise, on some supporting wall, some load-bearing wall. See, Easter is a time, friends, for us to reconcile with this fact that each of us is building our lives on something. Each of us is having faith in something. What's the load-bearing wall of your life? Richard Dawkins uh, Dawkins is a well-known atheist, and he says in the book The God Delusion... I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable. And I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. Do you hear that? Sometimes I think we pit faith against doubt. And we say, oh, doubt's easy to have, but faith is really hard to have. No, no, no. Everybody has faith. Everybody lives their life on a faith premise. Do you hear Dawkins? I cannot know for certain. He doesn't have any certainty. I, I build my life on the assumption there's a faith premise there. His load-bearing wall is that there is no God, and he builds his whole life upon it. What's the load-bearing wall of your life? What's your whole life resting on? I'm being upfront and honest with you this morning. The load-bearing wall of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like Paul says, if it didn't happen, we above all people are most to be pitied. We're a bunch of sorry suckers. We're giving our lives, sacrificing our lives for an absolute lie. We are worshiping a man. We're the worst of idolaters. It's horrific. If it didn't happen, we are a mess. But if it did happen, if it is true, wow, the promises are so rich. 
If it did happen, it means every single one of your sins can be forgiven. They can be washed entirely clean. If it did happen, you can have a future that's so incredibly bright, free from mourning or crying or sorrow or loss or pain, with a perfect king who comes to reign in perfect justice. If it did happen, you can finally be free. If it did happen, every single thing in your life has meaning because it will last into God's good future. Don't you see it, friends? Everything in our lives hinges on the resurrection. It's everything. It's the foundation of our faith. If it's true, our hope is sure. Without it, everything falls apart. It's almost like this. If you received a piece of mail and it said, you know, you have this long-lost relative who's just recently died and they happen to be incredibly wealthy and they quietly left you an enormous sum of money in the millions. You get this piece of letter and you're thinking, yeah, right. There's more scams today now than ever. I mean, I get scam phone calls every single week, right? And so you'd be thinking, I don't think this is true. But you've never received a letter like this before, right? I'm guessing you'd check it out. I'm guessing you'd check it out. Why? The claims are just too big. It's just too important to not at least investigate it. And that's what I'm urging you towards today, friends. The resurrection of Jesus is hard to believe and all the gospel writers are upfront about that they're saying this is going to be hard to believe. Even Jesus' own disciples who were told many times this would happen didn't believe it at first. They're upfront and real about that. It's not easy to believe but its claims are too big to not investigate it for yourself. If it's false, it should be immediately discarded. Don't spend another minute with it. But if it's true, friends, build your whole life on it. It's the supporting wall for every single one of our lives. Let's go now and search it out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the honesty, the openness of the gospel writers. And we thank you that we can believe, that we can trust that this is true, that Jesus, in fact, 2,000 years ago, came out of the tomb. And because of that, we have hope. It's in his beautiful name we pray today. Amen.